Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher with over 15 years of experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. Once you listen to today's episode, visit my website at barebonesyoga.com for free resource guides for teachers. Download any and all of them, including one of my most popular tools, my sequence building template. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 152. So uh, if you are a longtime listener, you know that I always uh, post episodes on Mondays, uh, but sometimes I record episodes at other times, especially if they are interviews with other people. And this episode is one of those. I am completely thrilled and honored to have this guest on my show. And I will do the big reveal in a moment. I just want to orient you. I'm recording this intro on October 7th, 2021. And you're going to hear this episode on October 11th, which happens to be here in Boston Marathon Monday, which will work its way as a theme into the conversation with my guest today. So I just thought that would be fun to note. So my guest today on the show is my dear friend and esteemed author, Rebecca Pacheco. Uh, Rebecca and I have known each other for a very long time, since 2002, when we attended our first teacher training with Baron Baptiste in Mexico, um, a fact that she reminded me of when we chatted at the beginning of this episode, you'll hear I had this memory of her, which was actually from our second teacher training together. So um, I have known her for a long time. I have tremendous respect for her. Um, I have just, you know, watched her, her trajectory into uh, just an amazing individual, uh, both in terms of contributing to her community and as a yoga teacher, her degree of skill is unparalleled. And as an author, and this book that she has just released called Still Life is her second book. Her first book is called Do Your Own Thing. And if you haven't gotten that book, uh, it came out in 2015, I would highly recommend it. It is absolutely amazing. And we talk a little bit about the subject matter of that book, as well as, of course, take a deep dive into her newest book just released called Still Life. Uh, Rebecca is uh, someone who is incredibly intelligent and thoughtful and knowledgeable and has a writing style that really takes you into not only her sense of vulnerability, but also her life. And she weaves personal anecdotes and stories into her writing. So it really feels 
when you read her books, like you're on um, a journey. She, I think she even referred to herself in the episode today as an essayist. And I would say that that's absolutely, um, absolutely true. So I don't wanna take up much more of your time here in listening to me go on about, um, about the intro. I wanna actually just kind of release the doves and allow you to just really sit back, make a cup of tea, um, enjoy this episode and order this book or go to uh, uh, your local bookstore. You'll hear her at the end, uh, say that you can really get this book anywhere books are sold so go to your favorite independent bookstore uh, or buy it online but uh, i would highly recommend it it has glowing reviews and it's an amazing book and you'll hear all about it in this episode so let's roll that interview with author rebecca pacheco her latest book still life here we go all right well hello rebecca pacheco Hello, Karen. Hello. <laughs> it is so great to be with you today. I'm so excited to have you on and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending some time with, uh, with me here on the podcast. Thank you. Um, I am obviously delighted to talk to you anytime, but it does as a, as a personal friend and as a teacher that I admire um, and have known for a long time, but I'm, but I'm also excited to be on your show and, and talk to other yoga teachers. Awesome. Well, I know, I'm sure that there are going to be people listening who um, have known the both of us from, you know, back in the day, the original <laughs> days. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure this is going to be something that they, that they will enjoy, as well as people who know you and love you from, you know, knowing you uh, here in Boston, people who have loved uh, your, your first book and who I'm sure are just diving in and loving as I did uh, your second book. So we've got stuff to cover today. I have promised you I'm going to try to keep this to under an hour. Um, so I'm going to kind of have one eye on the clock just to be sure we don't kind of get sucked down the rabbit hole here. Um, oh, but I'm, I'm all yours. I'm all yours. Okay. okay. <laughs> so um, I was thinking, you know, uh, along the lines of the fact that we have been friends for so long, and I was thinking back to uh, our original, I guess you could say time that we met, which was at a teacher training um, yes. back years, years ago, I want to say 2002, 2003, something like that. Yes. And I have this, this is kind of weird. And I don't know if you have this memory, but I have this vivid memory of us in Montana. And we were doing this at one of Barron's um, uh, uh, boot camp training things. Um, this like sharing exercise. And I re I have, this is so strange how you have these vivid memories. I have this memory of sitting out on the lawn with you and having a conversation with you. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but <laughs> it got me thinking about, you know, that was obviously a long time ago. And it got me thinking about you as a writer and kind of just the idea of if you have always wanted to be a writer, because that conversation, that sharing exercise we were doing, I'm sure we must have talked about something right. along the lines of what do you want to do with your life and that right. kind of thing. So I thought that might be a nice place to start, just in terms of if you always knew you wanted to be an author. Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, but But candidly, I don't know that I believed that it was 
possible in this iteration. Um, I, I certainly dreamed it. I, I studied English literature. Um, when we met, I was much younger, you know, it was so long ago. Uh, I, if I recall, we met in 2002 in Mexico. Oh, right. That's right. But, but you are correct because then I think pretty quickly thereafter, I, I know I ended up in Montana. No, That's you were the one. Yeah. Yes. That's the one. We ended up in Montana and that was our second time together on a yep. trip like that. Right. And, and I was certainly, I, I mean, you know, I, I probably was hiding this fact at the time a little bit because I was so young, but I was only 22 years old mm -hmm. and, and I was fresh out of college and I very much was trying to figure out my career. Mm -hmm. And the yoga part was a little bit of an accident, even though I had already been teaching at that point. I started teaching while I was still in school. Um, mm -hmm. And yoga was not really a career at that point. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but it was it was certainly yeah. expanding. Um, but I, I didn't see them coming together the way that they have. But yes, the short answer is that I, I always dreamed of writing a book or being in a, in a career in writing, you know, for a period I worked in, in media and kind of publishing adjacent industries. I worked at a magazine. I had a blog for a period, oh, when, right. you know, in the heyday of blogs. And, and so, uh, yeah, I, I have always wanted to write books. I've always loved books. And I was definitely the little kid that, you know, my form of my specific form of rebellion was staying up past my bedtime, reading under the blankets with a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, as a young child, I loved this book, Harriet the Spy, and she used to yeah. do that. That was like one of my favorite books. And that was always a vision uh, that a thing that she did as well. Oh, that um, makes sense to me, Karen, because you are so diligent and like, you miss nothing. I mean, you kind of are a little Harriet the Spy. Yeah. She kept notebooks. That was her thing. So I was always journaling and notebooking. That was kind of one of the things she liked to do. She would write about, and that was always the thing of her friends captured her notebook. They could read what she was thinking about them kind of thing. Um, so, so let me ask you this after, you know, I've got, as I sit here, I've got both your books here. Uh, and for, for listeners who aren't aware, um, your first book was called Do Your Own Thing. And of course, this book that I want to dive into today is called Still Life. And so I'm sitting here with both books, which I love them both. Matter of fact, I read your second book in like two weeks. And I remember I was like texting you these passages that were so meaningful to me as I was reading them. So thank you for indulging me. Uh told you oh, no thank you i mean because you you were one of the first to to receive a copy um yep. it was it's rare that i get feedback right like immediately or in real time um yep. you know being a writer as as you know you've written a book yourself but it, mm -hmm. it's like you you live with this idea for a very long time and it's just you and then you release it into the world and it's a little bit like doing a stand-up comedy routine. And then yeah. you're like, you're standing on stage waiting to waiting two weeks to see if anyone laughs. Like, mm -hmm. so yeah. at, least, at least while you were reading, I was like, oh, okay. You know, she's responding. People like this. Yeah. This is fun. <laughs> yeah. Does it feel a little vulnerable for you to share a book? Uh, it no. feels, yeah, it feels very vulnerable. Um, you know, it's why you do it. And yeah. And, and it's the whole 
impetus for for being a writer and trying to be published right and but then when it is actually happening it it's scary it's it's a little scary and and sometimes it's scary in ways that are a bit stealth where yeah. I, I don't even realize that I'm feeling vulnerable and and I'm just a little bit edgy or something and then I realize oh wow it's it's because there are no guardrails now. Like it's all out there. <laughs> yeah. And I think it probably, and, and tell me what you think of this idea. I think it, you know, it might be a little different if you were writing like a history book or something kind of more empirically based, but, but the topic, the subject matter of both your books kind of lends itself to that vulnerability. Would you say? I would say, I would say that the topic does. And I would also say that the kind of writer that I have become yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, even when I'm writing for the Boston Globe, I, I'm really not a journalist, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm more of a personal essayist, I guess, or a memoirist. And, and even when I'm teaching something and I might be using material that has existed for, for centuries, you know, in, in still life, I, I recount the story of the Buddha's enlightenment. That is a very old traditional foundational important story and so who the who the heck am I to, to tell it but but right. I wanted to put sort of my own uh experiences into it and my own um kind of consciousness into it and and that's just how I write I'm often described as a voicey writer and mm -hmm. at this point I can't help it <laughs> it's your style it is it is yeah yeah and and I would say you know it's always interesting for me when I read your books because I, I know you and I read your books versus someone who doesn't know you on a personal level and read your book. And because of that, I feel so much of you coming through the writing. And I think, um, you know, as I kind of went from your first book, Do Your Own Thing to Still Life, that common thread was still there. And, and it kind of made me wonder, you know, how... Um, the first book did so well and the focus of it being, you know, almost like a, a personal empowerment book for people to really kind of a call to action to do your own thing, like be authentic, be yourself, have confidence in who you are and don't be afraid to show it. When you were done with that and at some point along the line, when you decided to write a second book, how did you arrive on the theme for that? Mm. Um. It's so neat, Karen, you have such um, a, a deep familiarity with both books. And I'm trying to think of an interviewer. I don't think I've had an interview with this book with someone who's just so um, aware and in touch with both. It's very cool. So thank oh, you. Right. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're such a close reader. Um, so the idea and there, there was a lot of time between the two that wasn't necessarily intentional but a lot of life was lived yeah. and 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 then most recently you know I was editing in a pandemic um and so always there's an intention of what a book is at the outset any writer will tell you this whether they're writing nonfiction or fiction or um, self-help or memoir or historical fiction whatever it may be you have an idea of what the book is but then it takes shape differently in the writing process. Mm -hmm. But really the first book, Do Your Own Thing that you described so well, was, was the jumping off point. Um, and still life is a natural evolution from that. What happened is that I got to 
you know, talk to a lot of different people with do your own thing. And, and one pleasant surprise was how much people were relating to it far beyond yoga or yoga practice. And of course, part of that, your listeners are very, um, informed, educated, like they're yoga teachers, they know that yoga is much more than the bendy, beautiful poses. But in popular consciousness, sometimes that gets lost. And so what ended up happening was that people were so excited about that book, but it, it clearly had a broader application, you know, and that's as obvious as when I would go to you know, teach firefighters in a hazmat facility, right? Uh, yoga or talk to them about meditation, or I would be on a college campus in a lecture hall and there were no yoga mats at all, or I'd be at a fundraiser at a bar, like, you know, giving a little talk with, with alcohol, you know, on shelves right. behind me. And so what I ended up doing practically was teaching a lot of meditation or a lot of mindfulness that could be done far off a yoga mat or, or just in moments of our lives when it is absolutely not practical or possible to carve out an hour or 75 minutes or more if you're going to schlep to and from a studio in order to find some steadiness in order to find maybe that feeling after Shavasana, after a yoga class. But how do you do that without the, the 60 to 75 minutes leading up to that of, of touching your toes and sun salutations and all of that? Right. So it felt, it, yeah. So it felt like there was a need. It felt like people wanted to hear these stories and, and know how to do this. And, and so I just, I started to approach it from that perspective of having the sensibility of yoga maybe. And of course, the the umbrella of mindfulness practice um mm-hmm. but not having it be a yoga book at all you know there is a chapter on yoga and and certainly there's movement in it but it's it's much more of of the other modalities and just the larger kind of meaning and and sensibility of it in day-to-day life mm-hmm. now it's funny because you know maybe it i don't know why it kind of didn't hit me immediately because like it's like one of those paintings with the hidden painting inside once once I saw it it was so clear to me but I didn't catch it in the beginning that the name the title of the book still life yeah so I didn't get like not the double entendre but I didn't get the other meaning like the still life in the artistic sense so can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at the title yeah sure um yeah it has several meanings and and the fun part is that I arrived at it a little late. Um, it was during the proposal process. So the book, yeah. you know, had not been fully written yet, but I had pitched it as something else. And, and it was a fine title and I might still use it for something else down the line. Mm-hmm. But then um, it's kind of a cute story. You know, my daughter was very small. She mm-hmm. was napping. She was still napping back then. <laughs> and um, our house was in shambles, you know, we lived in a small city apartment, you, you know, Boston well, and you know, back Bay and the South end well, and we lived in the South end and there was laundry everywhere. There were toys everywhere. She was in a phase of, of shredding books, like (laughs) sort of sacrilegious if your mom's an author, but she was like, yeah, like eating books. And there was, you know, there were colored pencils and, And my husband and I 
we're taking a moment, we're both self-employed, we both work unconventional hours, but it happened to be a, a Saturday, which, you know, to yoga teachers means a lot of different things, but, yeah. but if you can participate in that, having a Saturday off moment, even if it's for, it's, even if it's for a moment, it does feel rather special. And our feet were on the coffee table and I had a white teacup on the table. He had his coffee, the colored pencils were everywhere and they were quite beautiful. And then everything else was in shambles. There were dirty dishes and there was laundry on the dining room table. And I, I just thought this is like still life with, with a toddler or (laughs) still life while the baby sleeps, you know, it was just, it was, it was this moment of stillness within the chaos. And I thought, wait, that's the title. That's, I got to change the title. (laughs) Wow. That is cool. And thankfully everyone went for it. And, and also I do love art. I mean, I, I am not an, an artist, visual artist, but I really have always loved and appreciated art and I have friends who are artists. And so I did like that still life art um, meaning. Yeah. And, but then more importantly, you know, you and I have, we have a lot in common, but I think we can all attest to the feeling either within ourselves or within our students that if we do everything right and we're good little yogis and we drink all the green juice and we do all the yoga poses and we meditate every day, that nothing bad will befall us, yeah. you know? And the truth is that still life can knock you down sometimes. And, right. and we think that like, oh, maybe we've done something wrong or that somehow we can change the course of life um, when, when it's hard. And obviously the pandemic has, has shown us all that, that we can't in many right. ways. It's, it's how we adapt because it's, it's still life. We, mm-hmm. we still have to keep going. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it, you can, you can hear the title and think of it in a lot of different ways. And, oh, and yeah. I love, I love when people catch it. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And even just in talking to you now that, that almost third or fourth iteration of like, Hey, it's still life. You know what I mean? Like, even though I'm sitting here on the couch and there's like chaos around me, it's, I'm still living and there's something, you know, sacred. There's something to be nurtured. There's something that is grounding just in that idea. Yeah. So I totally love that. Now, um, since you brought it up, it was, it wasn't something I had on the top of mind, but I'll just, you know, take a little detour here. How, how did the fact that the pandemic happened in the midst of your plan of action to, to create this book, how did that alter maybe the content or your direction? In yeah, if this is the million dollar question. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of folks uh, thought that it was intentional, that maybe I was so fast that I'd written, ah. it, I'd written it for the pandemic. And I wish I wrote that fast and that my life was set up that way. And that is so radically not the case. Um, the book was largely completed before the pandemic, but, oh. but it had to change. So what happened was when life completely halted in the spring of 2020, uh, publishing also halted, of course, in New York City, which is where HarperCollins is located. And I was back in Boston and I was on a deadline and Uh, my editor wisely advised just to pump the brakes because I said, should I be writing about this? Should I be integrating this? What do I do? And Mm. she said, you know what? It's way too early. Mm. Just hold off. So I held off 
<laughs> coincidentally, you know, I had a two-year-old, two and a half-year-old, three-year-old at home <laughs> without any childcare. So I had no choice but to hold off really. Yeah. And, and, you know, basically what happened was that once we got back into it that summer, and now the clock is really ticking and I'm really on a deadline. I, what I had to do was, I always set out to write a mindfulness book about the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so the book had to have an awareness of the moment because life had changed so dramatically yeah. that I couldn't, for example, open up with chapters about like how stressful your commute to work is because no one was commuting to work. Hmm. Wow. So, yeah. So there were, there were a lot of things that changed, but I had to be careful about two things. I had to be careful that I didn't timestamp the book in the yeah. you know, like yeah, it, you want the evergreen quality to still be retained to a certain extent because the subject matter is evergreen. Precisely, precisely. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was I had to be careful you know, like pulling a thread of a, a loose thread of a sweater, I didn't want to unravel the whole manuscript. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was kind of delicate work, but mm -hmm. I, I, I did my best. And I, I take it as a compliment, I guess, that people initially in reading and reviewing it thought that I had written it for this moment. Um, yeah. And I did, right? But, but the moment had changed. And so I had had to change tax multiple times and so ultimately in the end um we we got somewhere where it has an awareness of the pandemic but hopefully it feels much broader than that and yeah. Um, yeah yeah it's funny you know especially when you mentioned um the uh, the concept of a comedian I, i'm trying to think of the context when you when you brought that up before oh the comedian feeling vulnerable when they stand there in front of people and it reminds me of the very latest Jerry Seinfeld um, episode or stand up uh, yeah. which recorded prior to the pandemic on Netflix um, I think it's like 99 ways to something or other and he starts out his routine with this whole thing about the stress of getting to a comedy show. We're like, do you have the tickets? How are we going to get there? We're going to take an Uber. Like, and it's so relatable. And after the fact, I'd watched an interview with him and he said, um, I wanted to start that. It was my first standup in a long, long time. And I wanted to start it in a way that people could relate to because that was the space they were in at that moment. Yeah. And it makes me think about what you're saying because on some level, the I don't want to say the majority of people, because you can't say that the book will last forever, but so many of us are consuming this book in this wow. time, you right. know, um, and yet you didn't, you know, make the whole thing about it, but you right. did, you know, as a reader, I can say the references were, um, I don't know, in a weird way, comforting to me to know that it wasn't completely evergreen. And there was a reference to what we had, we are living through, which has been, so impactful and so so, so hard so yeah. hard you know yeah. i i um i i i like to be honest i mean yeah. this was a meditation book written to help people find inner stillness and steadiness and resuscitation and but it was written during a very hard time both personally you know even when i was writing it prior well before the pandemic i was a new mother and 
you know, I, I reference a little bit some serious health issues I had postpartum. And so that was really hard. And then, and then there was the kind of collective difficulty of the pandemic. So uh, I am definitely not the, the blissful monk on the mountaintop telling you I have it all figured out and this is how right. to do it. Right. I, was, I was really living through some difficult stuff. And, and that can be really hard for yoga teachers. You know, that's, of course, many of your listeners and, and we relate to this, like when you are charged with speaking to people and holding space for them to process difficult stuff, right? and you yourself are really going through difficult stuff, it can be hard and it can sometimes, you know, kick up that imposter syndrome of like, my God, I don't have it together and people expect me to hold space for them to feel, you know, at ease. But what I would lean into and what I came back to time and time again was the fact that I, no matter how hard things got at any stage of my life or the writing, it is meditation and it is these mindfulness practices that help me find my way again. Right. So right. even though, you know, and that's, that's the, the really important um, distinction is that we, we, we're not perfect yogis who have everything figured out. We're human beings. And I was trying to write about the human experience. And right. so no, I, I yeah. think you did, you did it masterfully. And I mean, that kind of is a great springboard as I, as I look, as I open the book to the table of contents and I'm just kind of for, for the listeners out there who haven't picked up the book yet, first of all, what are you waiting for? Go and pick up the book. Um, but second of all, <laughs> I adore you. <laughs> I'll just, I love you. Um, I'll just uh, you know, just kind of for, for, for folks, just give them a high level overview. So part one, you go into where to begin. Let's start in the present part two life myths, what the ego tells us, which I absolutely love that particular part. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the themes there. Part three is meditation myths and part four is the magic. And so it seems like in a way you're sort of debunking, 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 (laughs) and then you're like, okay, here's your call to action. So how did you decide to chunk things up like you did? That was the greatest challenge, I have to say, the structure. Um, You know, there are a lot of meditation books in the world. There are great meditation books in the world. Um, And I didn't want to rewrite something that people have already enjoyed or not enjoyed, you know? And so, but but one thing that is consistent between my, my two books, as you said, is that I do feel really strongly about empowering students and empowering practitioners to understand how these practices work in real life. Um, And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and miscomprehension around how things look or how things should feel Mm -hmm. um, or how, you know, we should present ourselves. And I think that's exacerbated, of course, by our you know, kind of internet culture and in social media culture is that we see beautiful images of of yogis balancing perfectly on their heads or meditating peacefully in serene locations. And the reality is for most people is much closer to, you know, my story of like the, Mm. the, the pencils everywhere and the eaten books and the unwashed dishes and the laundry like that, that's real life. And And so that's been always an area of interest for me and a common thread of, 
you know, making it make sense for my students and my readers in a way that they can integrate right now. Like not for some perfect moment after you go on a yoga retreat and you learn what you need to learn or not after you, you know, have a daily meditation practice, but like this afternoon today or before you go to bed tonight, is there, is there a one minute meditation that might help you sleep better? You know, it's, and also just the, the sensibility and the storytelling is, has always been really important to me and, and how I relate to people and how I relate to the material. Yeah. And I think that that really is a distinguishing factor of this book. You know, I guess we could say like, and I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong here. Like if we say this book is, is um, a guide to meditation and mindfulness, kind of making the distinction between the two, but yet it's so relatable in its way of approaching it was, was that part of your intention, especially when you talk about the fact that there are a lot of meditation books out there? Yeah, I didn't want to scale it back to places that I assumed many of my readers had already been, right? Like it's not, it's not an introduction to meditation. I didn't want it to feel that way, but you can absolutely pick it up without any experience as a meditator and dive in. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes it a little bit different or just, you know, we, we were joking about how my style as a writer now is my style and I can't help it, but it's a how-to, but it's kind of told from a memoiristic perspective yes. a little bit, right? I mean, yes, I totally, I totally felt that um, the personal stories are a common thread that makes it um, not just. A, a vulnerable thing for you in a way, because some of what you share, you know, does border on the vulnerable, but there's a little bit of, you know, how you feel about certain things and bridging meditation into societal and cultural issues. And, and that comes from your belief and value system. It does, but it also comes from, you know, mindfulness tradition, you know, from, right. from its roots and, and ultimately, you know, any, any, good teacher will tell you that we don't do these practices to get really good at sitting in a dark room with our eyes closed, not speaking to one another. Right. We, right. we, we do these practices to be more present and compassionate in our lives with real people, <laughs> and, right. you know, and, and so I try not to ever lose sight of that. And I think also that this moment in time that we're living in requires us to show up. It, and I think we've gotten ourselves collectively in a lot of trouble by not facing the moment. You know, one, one very glaring example is climate, right? Like for a long time, people knew the truth and were not able to face the truth. Right. right. And so, you know, it's a hard truth, but it does not improve and we have no other planet to live on, right? Until we step up and we do the hard thing. We, we can't keep sitting still with our eyes closed in a dark room meditating. We, we have to acknowledge what's happening and, and ideally act. So that, that maybe was more prominent or pronounced in this book. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I, I even marked off a particular passage where, where you, you're talking about kind of meditation being a, you say here, a cultural, social, and political force for positive change. And, and then you go on to say, we must see reality before we can change it. We begin 
with the with a seat at the table of our own mind. And so I think that that is a beautiful way to tie it together. You know, you're kind of speaking to the individual and then how that individual can kind of ripple effect through society. Yeah. Yeah. So totally love that. Now, I wanted to ask you too, you know, one of the themes that really resonated with me, you know, just as a living, breathing human being is this kind of recurring theme um, that highlights the things that we tell ourselves Hmm. and, and how that can shape our mind. It's almost like when you hear people say we are not our thoughts. Can you talk a little bit about that and how meditation is a tool to manage that? Because I think, and especially where you touched on social media, you know, we kind of can get fueled by looking at social media and then we tell ourselves stories fueled by some of the jealousies and angers and things that are catalysts that come to us when we look at social media. But even without that as the catalyst, we can have these conversations with ourselves. And I think at one point you even said, the things we tell ourselves, we wouldn't even tell anybody else. Yeah, we would, so, we would not dream of saying to a friend, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Right, so how, I mean, if you find yourself in that cycle, whether it's like you wake up at night and you start to ruminate over, oh, I didn't do this yesterday, or I have these things to do tomorrow. I mean, how, how do we use meditation as a tool to kind of break that cycle? Yeah, well, I think what I'll, what I'll do is, is use sort of that breakdown of the myth versus the magic with this question. You know, the myth is, or the miscomprehension is that meditation's purpose is to stop our thoughts or like our mind is supposed to go blank and quiet. You know, you, you know better by now, but I think that that is, wouldn't you say that that's one of the most common? Yes, that yeah. people think that's, yeah. Right, and then what happens is as soon as you begin to practice, um, you learn very, very quickly that we have a lot of thoughts, (laughs) that the mind is darting around in a lot of different directions. And if you're not careful, you might presume that you are doing it wrong. Oh gosh, my mind is too busy. I can't meditate. I'd love to do this. My, My doctor says it would be good for me. I know perhaps I would sleep better at night, but I just can't, my mind is too active. Yeah that's not a special thing. That's just how it is. Everyone, you know, most people feel to some degree, wow, it's noisy up here. When we we first sit down and try it. And so the, the, the first part is just having a little bit of faith and sticking with it. And you're not trying to stop the thoughts. You're just trying to observe them from a, um, a more centered place, right? You're just observing the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And then with practice, what happens is you quickly, or, you know, eventually realize that you are not your thoughts, which you said so beautifully. Mm. And you have some agency around which thoughts you want to engage. Mm. And this becomes the piece in your daily life that you don't have to enact necessarily. It's just kind of this undercurrent that you have in your life where there's a little bit more of a pause between the thought, the feeling, the thing on social media, the breaking news alert, that instead of kind of being hijacked, you know, your attention being fragmented, fractured, hijacked all day long in multiple directions, 
there's an ability to pause. There's a little bit of space and you can decide how you'd like to engage. Um, you know, not all the time. You, there are still things that will deeply uh, anger us or upset us, and but it's very stressful to live in that state of what's next, what's next, what's next, or to be constantly relitigating or rehashing stuff that's happened in the past and to instead find that ability to be right here in the present, to take a breath, to take a beat. And yeah. instead of, instead of, you know, quote unquote, reacting, how can you respond? Um, yeah. You know, Dan Harris is, is uh, I'm sure, you know, has a great podcast and, and a book about meditation, 10% happier. And, and that's one of his nice catchphrases is, you know, not, not reacting, but responding. Right. Well, it's kind of the Mel Robbins five, four, three, two, one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And you know, you aren't, you are not what you think. Like all of these, you know, often critical thoughts that run through our minds. I think, you know, I'm making an assumption here, but probably most, the majority of your listeners are women, not all, yep, but yep. we get many more messages from society that we need to be different, smaller, quieter, more uh, appeasing, more attractive, younger, right. thinner, right? It's really incessant. And so the magic is having a place in your life where you get to quiet that noise, where you, where you can say, okay, I hear you judgments, but like, not right now. Right. Like we're, we're not going there right now. And right. you just create a little bit more, more space from mm -hmm. that onslaught. Yeah, the space, uh, the space is really the magic. I think that that, uh, that theme is, is definitely one of the things that then you can kind of introduce intentionality because now you have the space. So now you're no longer reacting. You can be in, intentional and that can, can really shift, I think, how you feel energetically. No, I right. love that. Um, like, have you, I'm curious, have you ever, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Sure. Like, have you ever asked your yoga students or, um, you know, how they can tell that yoga is working in their lives or like how they feel on a day that they've done yoga versus not, or how you feel on a day that you've meditated, right? Like I always find that so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I can think, you know, especially one of the students who's coming to see me for one-on-one -on -one sessions who prior to the pandemic was, but then that of course all went away. And because of my move, I have a different space available to see people privately. And um, so she was recounting, you know, what it was like to be practicing on her own and then practicing, you know, uh, in one-on-one in -on -one sessions with me and how, you know, some of the differences in just how she carries herself. And she happens to be a surgeon at Children's Hospital in Boston. So she's always in stressful situations. Yes. So yeah, she, yeah, she, she talks about just that feeling of grounding that she gets from practice that gives her that space in scenarios that are by their nature, incredibly stressful. Yes. Gosh, that's a, that's such a high pressure example, but yeah, absolutely. You know, it's in, in parenting. I see it all the time, the yeah. way that that, you know, my kid might be having a meltdown and that can be very, very stressful yes. and how I, how I react, I can feel it colored by whether I I've given my practice, you know, it's, it's attention that day yeah. or, or, or lately. Right. Cause 
because maybe it's maybe we can't do every day, but but we can do something. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, I kind of this as I'm as we're talking about this, it kind of leads nicely into another thing that you mentioned in the book that I hadn't actually heard described this way. And, and I think as we're having this conversation, it kind of makes me think about sort of an adjacent conversation about, and I don't want to necessarily call it manifesting, but just that um, maybe companion technique of saying positive things to yourself and, you know, being positive in general. And then when I was reading the book, when you described um, this concept that I, I guess you credit to John Wellward, a prominent psychotherapist, using this term spiritual bypassing. And then you go on to kind of outline, you know, this, this um, concept being overemphasizing the positive, avoiding the negative, being self-righteous about the concept of enlightenment, um, being overly detached. As I was reading, there's a couple other things, but as I was reading it, it reminded me a little bit of in the beginnings of the pandemic when there was this kind of, I was catching some things on Instagram and Facebook where people were just kind of saying, hey, you just got to stay positive. And I think obviously we didn't know a lot about it from a science perspective at that point. Um, but even outside of that example, can you speak a little bit to this idea and how to make the distinction between, hey, you're doing like good, legit work versus you're just like sort of gaslighting yourself? <laughs> in <a way. laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. So, so spiritual bypassing is, um, is, is a form of gaslighting. That term was coined by that, um, psychologist that you mentioned. And, and I believe he, he, he may have recently passed away. I'm uncertain. Um, but okay. it's not, a, it's not a term I came up with, but it's one that I think that a lot of yoga teachers feel in their bones that we, yeah we have we've been exposed to and, yeah. and and it's it is you know oh be positive or look on the bright side or good vibes yeah. only and and i understand that the intention behind that is 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 often well intentioned that like yeah. you know we're often trying to focus on you know the good and that's not inherently bad um but what is bad is not holding space for real emotion you know, right. whether it's ourselves or others. So in terms of, you know, speaking to yourself in meditation, that's a little different. And what we realize in meditation is that there are a lot of voices up there. Like, I think, you know, maybe that feels familiar to, to you and yeah. to people yeah. is that like very quickly, you're like, wow, it's noisy up there. And you also realize like, hmm, that's not even my voice, right? Yeah. And, and again, you know, because of this is you and me talking and because, you know, I, I think I have a sense of your listeners, like for women in particular, there are a lot of noisy voices in the world telling us to be and act and do and look a certain way, right? So sometimes it's useful to channel a different voice, to channel a kinder voice, you know, in your meditation, for example, you might just say something kind to yourself, like, it's okay. Right. Or, you know, I'm here or you, you are enough. Like though that's not spiritual bypassing that is, you know, invoking kindness and love into your, to your meditation, right? What we're, what we're talking about in that chapter is, you know, sort of the, 
the policing of other people's emotions and other people's yeah. feelings, or it's the using a spiritual practice. This is the one that really gets me. And I think that the yoga community has a big problem that it needs to reckon with in terms of, and I don't know a lot about this because thankfully in my community, we, we don't really have a pronounced strain of this, but like the QAnon yoga mom phenomenon, right. that's right. a lot of syllables that all sound alike, but <laughs> But like how do how something spiritual and uh, and community based becomes a form of great harm, uh, you know, white supremacy of right, right. it gets you know, co-opted by these yeah, others. it gets co-opted. And so that's really what I wanted to touch upon. And that research about spiritual bypassing seemed like the right place to focus. and and that chapter, was added late it was at it was um edited late but i felt like it was very important to modern yoga yeah no i think that's true and i think you know you when you say modern yoga you know of course we can kind of juxtapose that or not even juxtapose it but just kind of acknowledge that there is this passage of time that yeah. yoga has gone through and so you know i guess on some level it's inevitable that it would be um influenced on some way, in some ways, by things that are current themes that weren't themes certainly even five, 10 years ago. So I think right. it's good to kind of bring that out into the open so people can be seeing seeing things and, and making, I guess, making their own choices. Um, I, I didn't actually mark this in the book, but when you were speaking earlier uh, about just kind of the way that you weave stories about yourself into uh, your writing, which is, I think, in part what makes it so touching and moving to read it. I was wondering, and I think this would be a really cool thing for the listeners to hear, if you could recount a little bit about, and I hope I'm not going to mess up kind of the scenario, when you went to visit the monk, and I want to say it was like raining and you hadn't eaten, there was this like beautiful story, and I just, I have such a, um, uh, just such a, uh, not even fascination, but like a reverence for that whole idea of like going to visit a monk and I don't know just can you share a little bit about that story in like a nugget way that would give the listeners an idea of what that's about I think it's just was such a beautiful story sure sure um that comes up at the end toward the end yes. of the book. it's actually kind of like the final scene or it builds up to you know what we might call the final scene yeah and what happened was at the time I was on contract with the Boston Globe and I was kind of charged with being a steady voice. And so, yeah. you know, this is that our conference, we spoke earlier about sometimes, at least for me, it kicks up that imposter syndrome of like, the sky is falling and I'm the one who's supposed to say nice things. And, right. <laughs> and so I never want to come from a place of, of that spiritual bypassing of, of ignoring reality, right? That is never the job of mindfulness, meditation, yoga. We're not ignoring reality. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time I could come up with stories and I was sort of charged as being counter-programming for the news. So we're talking about, you know, this is post 2016 election. Um, this is, you know, eventually it's now the crisis at the border. I'm a new mother and I'm, I'm hearing, you know, the audio of, of children imprisoned in cages. And I, it just gutted me. And I thought, how on earth am I supposed to be 
the steady, peaceful voice, the counter-programming to the breaking news right, right now. And so I, you know, that was above my pay grade. And so I had to go and seek out the wisdom of oh. spiritual people, of, of spiritual leaders in the community. Right. You did, yeah, you did mention a little bit of that being yeah. the catalyst. Okay, got it. Yeah. So it was initially for a story that I thought I would write for the globe. And, and what happened was that it became too big of a moment to put together a quick article. And, and it wasn't necessarily intended for the book, but then it came back around and it, it just fit so perfectly that here I am, I've scheduled the interview for like peak traffic in Boston. I'm going from my new home in a neighborhood that I don't know, traveling all the way through the city, north of Boston. Right. Truly, I don't even know where I'm going. I have forgotten to eat lunch. Um, I've like barely combed my hair, but I have showered and that was a big deal. I realized that there's like leftover trail mix in the door pocket of my car and I managed to like eat that. And if you're going to be late for a meeting, the best scenario that you can hope for is to be late for a meeting with a, with a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And so I arrive at the center and I park and it happens to be a beautiful day, I think in, in June maybe. And the Tibetan prayer flags are fluttering around the porch of the center. And I go in and they receive me and they're completely gracious and understanding. And then I sit down with Geshe-la, uh, Geshe Tenli of the Kurukula um, Buddhist Center in Medford, Mass. And we just have this conversation and I have these big que existential questions like mm -hmm. how can we be okay when the world is not okay? Mm -hmm. And what he did was, you know, what, what we've talked about you and I today, which is that he did not pretend that things were okay. Mm. He, he he did not gloss over anything he didn't say be positive <laughs> yeah no, no bypassing from him yeah and none whatsoever and those are the roots of mindfulness and meditation it, you know it it comes from the buddhist tradition and so i did want to honor that and um ultimately what he says you know i, I maybe i'll spoil the ending but but what he says is something about human nature and that it is fundamentally good is, is really where we land. And, mm -hmm. and in that moment, you know, they had brought me tea and these little Tibetan, it's sort of like non, like a pancake. And, yeah. you know, the sun is streaming in and I'm sipping my tea and oh. he's seated under a tanka, which is a kind of a holy painting image behind him. It's often painted on uh, like canvas, but then trimmed in silk and brocade and, mm -hmm. And I just was able to take a beat. And yeah. I had come from, you know, the harried world of new motherhood and of journalism and of breaking news and of upsetting news. And yeah. I wanted answers. Right. right. <laughs> and, and, and what I got was this beautiful, literal moment of, of still life, of, of stillness and of connection. And I think what happened in the writing, this is, you know, maybe, maybe much more than you asked, forgive me. That's okay. Um, but, you know, in the, in the finishing of the book and in the editing of it for the pandemic, I listened to the recording of his voice 
And I realized I had not been in a room with another person other than my husband and daughter for many, many months. Mm -hmm. And, and that's why that scene felt like the right way to end the book was, was maybe because I'd had such separation that it really came back to human beings and our very nature of togetherness and taking care and listening and showing up. And, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, as I said earlier, sitting in the dark with our eyes closed, not talking to each other. It's about how we pour the tea, how we offer the bread, how we, you know, listen when our friends are struggling or, you know, pause and take a beat when the child is having a bonkers meltdown. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And just the message about the inherent goodness of people, I think is, you know, you can talk about all the other things, but to boil it down to that, I think is, is pretty powerful. Yeah, it was. And, and it, you know, we had this very long conversation together and, and it was the most animated that I had seen him. I don't have a close relationship with this, with this monk, but, but I, I have interacted with him many times. He blessed my daughter after she was born. Um, and this was the most animated and, um, distraught that I had ever seen him was during yeah. this, this period yeah. and in relationship to the questions that I was asking, and, right. you know, the, 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 the questions about social justice and racism and, um, you know, immigration, he, he really, I could tell that he felt it too. And to have him so eloquently and compassionately land right there on, on, what is within every single human being and that, that inner goodness, that basic goodness was very reassuring. Yeah, I can, it kind of reminds me just quickly, I'll just share a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't even know how this happened, but I mean, I know how it happened, but I passed, I I saw this woman approaching me on the street who was a nun and she was dressed in, you know, the the full um, outfit and I don't even remember the last time I saw a nun. I was raised Catholic. And even though I'm not, I don't consider myself a practicing Catholic, but there was some right now, but there was something about seeing her in the out. I just wanted to go up to her and just ask her questions. I, I don't know. There was just something I felt compelled to look to her for guidance. Right. Um, I think it was a, a day that was particularly challenging in terms of, as you say, the news and, and headlines and stuff. So uh, um, I don't know. I, I think that whole visual of you going there and and the fact that he isn't just absent of what is happening in reality, but yet is able to still kind of rise above the cacoph- cacophony and kind of land on a broader message is is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, a special person. And, um, oh, yeah. you know, even the night prior, he had been at the ER with someone in their community and he had, he'd been telling me about that. And now this is years before the pandemic. And one issue that he immediately honed in on was the fact that people were in the waiting room and some people were like sitting on the floor and there wasn't enough room. And, and he immediately felt upset because he knew that certain people are subjected to that kind of waiting or care that other people would never, you know, mm-hmm. at the time he, 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 he used the example of like 
the mother of a, of a great political leader would not be sitting on the floor. Right. You know, like he, he right away uh, spoke to that issue. And, and now with, you know, the public health crisis that we've been living through, like we're, we're far more aware of the disparities in uh, health and access to health and, um, and all of that. But, but um, he's, he was very much in the world and of the world. And, and I think, you know, to your point about the nun, it's, it can feel reassuring to see holy people among the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you kind of look to them for that ability to transcend the minutiae of what's happening and their ability to to acknowledge it, but yet not get sucked in and lose sight of the broader, you know, anchoring messages and, and values and themes and ways to live. So I I really, I thought that was just such a beautiful story. So I want to just be mindful of your time. I have two more things to ask you. The, the, the first, the first one is really more for people who are listening, maybe who have read the book, who haven't read the book. Um, but maybe just someone who's out there listening, who hasn't meditated, who, as you said earlier, maybe doesn't have experience with it. Are there certain things they can do to sort of get the ball rolling? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, as I said, um, I wanted, I didn't want to write Meditation 101 necessarily, yeah. but, I, but I did want it to be available to anyone who, who might pick it up. Like, I presume some sort of familiarity with the subject, but, but absolutely, if you're not a regular meditator or have haven't even meditated ever, you can still pick it up and really enjoy it and get something from it. You know, there's a one minute meditation. It's in the chapter about not having any time. And so, you know, that that might be a place to start a one minute meditation, which is essentially like 10 breaths. Mm -hmm. I go into it with a little bit more detail and you can choose a word to connect with. Like it, you know, if you're having a hard day or you're feeling frantic, you might you might choose steadiness or clarity or calm or peace. And you just inhale, count one. And as you exhale, silently say that word, inhale silently, you count two, exhale silently, say that word and just do that for a minute. The other thing that people can do to get the ball rolling is just sit in silence for Mm -hmm. a few minutes. If you, if, if meditation itself feels too daunting, just, just sitting in silence and, letting your hands be free of your phone and letting your ears be free of, of headphones and letting your eyes be free of, of Netflix or whatever it is and, and just let yourself kind of um, marinate in, in quiet and just take right. that. Right. No, I love that. And, you know, kind of on a related note and you touched on it a little bit. Um, I know you speak in the book about mantras and, yeah. and using those, do you have a favorite one that you like to use? Oh yeah. I mean, I have so many favorites, but, but probably one of my all time go-to mantras is, is two words. And the beauty of two word mantras is that they can very easily be linked to the breath. Mm-hmm. And for some people, that's a little bit too much control, right? They, they just, they want to be a little bit looser and that, and that's okay too. You got to kind of pick and choose, but a two word mantra, you have the opportunity to, you know, on the inhalation, you can say the first word and on the exhalation, the second, and, and that all time favorite go-to is just this. Oh, that's nice. 
you know, particularly if you're prone to getting ahead of yourself, if you're feeling overwhelmed, just to kind of dial it back, just this, Mm. that has been helpful to me for many years. Yeah. That is great. Especially when you're trying to do eight things at once. It's like, yes, let me just (laughs) do this one thing. So my final question is to just kind of get, if you, if you have one, I mean, although maybe it's really centered around supporting and getting, getting this book out into the world, like what's kind of next for you? Where are you focusing now? Oh, um, I am focusing on writing more writing and, um, Mm -hmm. and ideally a third book, uh, it's, it's underway, but it's in its very yeah, it's in its very nascent stages though, Karen. It's, yeah. it, it's, um, I, I'm definitely still kind of playing around and, and that is really fun. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it'll be a, a relatively big departure, this, this third book. Oh. Um, and you know, my, my yoga career has, has evolved dramatically. I, I don't intend to go back into a studio, um, for right now, I'm, I'm teaching one online class, mm-hmm. um, but I am really continually learning how to merge my various uh, paths, you know, yeah. and, and how to how to use what I have and what I've created to continue to help people and teach people. But but the role that I take has kind of shifted. Um, so so I'm learning, you know, I'm learning and I'm writing and I'm, I'm hopefully just going to keep going. That's awesome. And I mean, isn't that just a testament to like the human spirit and that we have the ability to evolve and change. And it's just, I think, and especially now if people are listening and they find themselves at somewhat of a crossroads, maybe because of the pandemic, it's affected their career. And I think that theme of you can kind of be the caterpillar to the butterfly in, in many different aspects of your life. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you're a great example as well. Like your career has had so many iterations, mm-hmm. um, you know, from like vastly different industries yeah. and, and I'm, I'm the same. And so most people or or, you know, I would say like most listeners probably know me from the yoga world. Um, right. but that's kind of a slice of who I am. And, and right. I think, what I'm trying to do and what I'm inspired by most right now is the long game and, and not getting too bogged down with what is immediately in front of me or, or how it has altered so much from how things used to be, but kind of taking in, okay, where do I want to go over time? And that, that feels a little bit to me more productive is, is the long game approach. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely the wise, I think the wise approach rather than just kind of, and sometimes I think you have to do kind of something in stopgap mode. Yes, yes, but yes, exactly. Keep your eye on that, you know, that exactly. long game. I love that. And nothing uh-huh. permanent. I mean, talk about that's very right. Buddhist. Nothing, nothing is permanent. So you can pivot and pivot again. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I, I think that that's, it's, it's kind of like, having all the balls in the air at the same time, but yet at the same time, seeing the horizon in the distance and like, okay, I have all these balls right in front of me right now, but I can see that. And I love that. That's kind of, you know, where, where your eyes are at, like at the horizon. So awesome. 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 Well, this has been totally lovely and amazing as I Uh, 
so much fun. I, I feel really grateful that, that first of all, you're my friend and you've, you've witnessed, you know, so much of the journey and, and likewise for me and you, and now you have this podcast, but it's very cool to talk to a friend, but in this medium and, and, and uh, think of your listeners and other yoga teachers who might benefit from it. Oh yeah. I'm sure they're going to. And, you know, as we kind of wrap up, what's, I mean, I can, we can always just say, go to Amazon and buy the book. Are there other places where you want to direct people or like how they go to your website? How, how, how can people get still life? Oh yes. Well, still life is available wherever books are sold. So people can buy it wherever they like to buy their books. Um, for more information, the easiest place to remember is probably stilllifebook.com oh, awesome. and, and that will direct people, um, to several different options. If you like to buy your books from Indies and they don't have it, they are usually more than happy to order it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want a signed copy those, if there are listeners that are local to Boston, um, the Brookline Booksmith has signed copies available. So oh, yeah. I, one of my favorite. One of my yeah. Favorite. So the holidays are coming. Like that's kind of a nice thing to, to gift people is uh, a signed copy of the book. Got it. Now I know that I'm just thinking too, if people want to connect with you, Instagram is a good place. I know you have a, a Instagram yeah. here, home gal on Instagram, not Rebecca. Yep, and Twitter and yep. Yep. I'm on Facebook less, but, but I do have a page there, Om Gal blog, facebook.com slash Om Gal blog. But the best place is my handle um, on Instagram and Twitter, Om Gal. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I love the book. I know listeners will love the book. Go out and buy the book. And just thank you for sharing your wisdom and just peeling back the layers of what inspired you to write the book. It was absolutely oh. lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Karen. That means a lot to me. And and it's been a total joy to be with you on your show. Same. All righty. Well, we will be talking soon. Hi, everybody. Karen Fabian here. And thank you so much for listening to that episode. Before you hang up, before you disconnect and move on with your day, I just want to let you know, if you're like a lot of the yoga teachers that I talk to, you're looking for ways to break down anatomy into its key parts so that you've got an organized approach for your studying. Well, I'm going to tell you an easy way that you can get hold, get a hold of the topics that you should be studying. And they're all reviewed in my learn anatomy challenge. This is a free video series that you can access online, watch the videos, download the guide that goes with it. And you'll essentially have an outline to shape the studying that you're doing because it takes the broad subject of anatomy and breaks it down into just the key topics that you need to know. So in order to get to the Learn Anatomy Challenge free video series, you're going to need to go to the special URL, the special web page that holds these videos. So if you're driving right now, you're probably not going to be able to obviously write this down. If you're able to write this down, I want you to just grab a pen and a piece of paper and just write down this URL. You can also send me a direct message on Instagram and I'll send you the link directly. If you're looking for the URL, you want to just go to it yourself. Uh, I'm going to give it to you right now. It is barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn anatomy challenge forward slash. And in between the words learn anatomy challenge are hyphens. So it's learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge 
and then forward slash. So again, I'll just read you the URL, barebonesyoga.lpages.co forward slash learn hyphen anatomy hyphen challenge forward slash. So that's the web page that holds all of these videos. There's nine of them. Uh, and you can go through those and you can take notes. You can print out the uh, guide that goes with it. That would be uh, that will be a great companion guide to have in front of you as you're going through these videos. So again, if you have any trouble getting to it, just send me a direct message on Instagram and I'm happy to send you the link directly. Don't be on your own trying to study anatomy. Use this free video series to hone in on just the topics that you need to know. Good luck.